but then the disciples don't do the don't do the miracle. True. They just obey Jesus. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Karen. Morning. And Amy. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. So the question I have to pose to everybody today is if Amy's husband puts a cat in a box, (laughs) is that cat alive or dead? It depends if he drilled air holes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh for our listeners if you don't know because <laughs> i found out all ridiculous and we're overgrown children i think they've figured that one out by now <laughs> are they still listening well are you still listening yeah but you know i i, I found out that i'm just inter- incredibly intelligent and smarter than everybody i know because i've heard of schrodinger's cat and a lot of people haven't <laughs> no because he remembered schrodinger's cat i'm sure yeah. that <laughs> Probably everyone has been exposed to it, but did your noodle retain that information? <laughs> Schrodinger's cat is a weird, philo- phil- I guess, philosophical question that was posed, but I don't even know what the guy's first name is. Schrodinger, my, my, the first thing I need to think of is, uh, I think of the, the kid in Peanuts that played the piano. Erwin. Erwin Schrodinger. And it's quantum physics. Thank you very much. Okay, physics, quantum physics then. But the idea that if you have a cat in a box and it's sealed up in there and you can't see it, you can't observe it, you don't know if it's alive or dead. And so you have to assume it's both. And then Karen went a little deeper today and found out that it's because there's a vial of poison in there with the cat. And you don't know whether the vial has released its poison, which would kill the cat instantly. There's no suffering. And it wouldn't matter if Amy's husband drilled air holes if the vial of poison releases. <laughs> so, I'm, just, I'm just glad we found a home for the cat. <laughs> yes. Yes. So so Amy being being the a veterinarian found herself with a with a with a cute little kid. I didn't see the cat. I assume it was a cute little kitten. It he might was. have been a nasty feral little thing, but she gave it to one of our church church members. So I'm hoping no, it was, was an... adorable. He saw his <laughs> chance with those you... kids and he was sweet. <laughs> I would just like to point out that you can be adorable and feral at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Karen is a case in point. <laughs> love it <laughs> yeah so anyway funny funny little kitties and the weird ways that matt's sense of humor goes when he's when he sees a cat being put in a box <laughs> so <laughs> all right we're not here to talk about cats like at all today <laughs> although we are going to talk a little bit about some death so but there's no question about who's dead in this story <laughs> we are picking up in the book of matthew chapter 14 and because of what ground gets covered there, we cover basically Mark 6 and about the first third of uh, Luke 9 as well. And our listeners may recall a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, something like that. I don't remember. We were talking about John the Baptist being in prison. And we were thinking at the time that he was already dead. and But we couldn't ever remember why we were thinking that because chronologically it hadn't fit or maybe... I, I don't remember exactly how that story went. You can go back and listen to it, and then you can write in and remind us of what, what, what we talked about that day. 
But today we, we get to the story of how we know John the Baptist died and how he died. And it's, man, it is really, it's a pretty gross story. I'm going to be honest with you. And as I was, and as I was looking at the notes of my Bible, I found out this story is even more gross than I thought it was because there is some, there is some weird stuff going on uh, in this story. Uh, and like we've said here on the podcast before, the Bible is not all sunshines and unicorns, uh, depending on which version you read. There actually are unicorns, but um, that's a whole different job. Um, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember where they where a unicorn is is uh, is mentioned, but it's it's, it's like in the book of Job. Yeah, one translation, and it depends on the translation you read, because then others are like something completely different. You know, like okay, whatever. Some there was some weird uh, translation stuff going on there. But anyway, we are here today to talk about what happens to John the Baptist. Now we remember John the Baptist had been basically the herald for Jesus, Jesus's cousin, born slightly before Jesus. We saw him out in the wilderness. We saw him preaching repentance. We saw him preaching the coming of uh, the kingdom of God. We saw him baptize Jesus. That was when we saw the Holy Spirit come like a dove. We heard God's voice out of heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased in, re in reference to Jesus. And so it's that John the Baptist. And a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about John the Baptist was in prison, wondering if Jesus was the Messiah because I guess we assume somewhat that John is like, why am I in prison? I'm, I'm doing the will of God. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, preaching what God has led me to preach. We have the Messiah here, I think, but yet things aren't going the way I thought they were going to go. So, so I'm John, yeah, I'm in prison and you I'm know. still here. And I'm still here. And so he had sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah or do we look for another? Which Jesus responded by, well, look at the things I've done. Look what I'm doing as I'm healing, as I'm preaching. And you tell me if you think I'm, the, you know, that was basically where it was. Jesus didn't come right out and say it, but basically look at what I've done and, and make a judgment on that. That's, I mean, I feel bad for him. That's terrible. You know, mm -hmm. what kind of doubt he had been so for Jesus and so sure. And then, like, what kind of doubt must that have cast over his poor little heart? Yeah. My, but I think it, I think it goes to say that. Huh? Oh, go ahead. I was just <clears throat> saying, you know, my cousin is the Messiah. I've spent all this time getting everybody ready. And now he just lets me sit here. That's mm -hmm. tough. I think it kind of goes along. I have written down that no matter who you are, you could still experience da uh, being down and depressed mm -hmm. given any yeah. situation. Right. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good reminder to us to be, re to remember that just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that this life here is going to be easy. It's going to be simple. It's going to be comfortable. In fact, if we're perfectly honest about it, it's probably going to be the opposite. We'll have we will have some peace. We may find some prosperity, but the fact of the matter is we're at odds with the rest of the world. You know, we're going to believe in things that the rest of the world doesn't believe in. We are going to try to advance some things that the rest of the world doesn't believe in um, because we we believe in a higher purpose, a higher calling. 
that there's more going on than just what's right in front of our eyes. What's right, you know, what's right here. Um, and, and, and so we have to be prepared to set aside comfort if necessary. We have to be prepared to set aside prosperity if necessary. But with the understanding that we'll have an inner peace knowing that we're doing the right thing. I find the story itself so horrifying. Like Herod is so affected by the things that he's heard John the Baptist say that he wants him dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, and and so this is, <clears throat> I mean, obviously at the beginning of the story, we know he already is, but um, but just that sort of brutal, um, you know, violence that happens is really horrific. And And all that John the Baptist did was call out, you know, hey, you shouldn't take your brother's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's where we where we do pick up is as the story begins, we find out that John the Baptist is already dead. And so what we read through the rest of, of the story is basically flashback of how that came to be. Because Herod is hearing about the things that Jesus is doing, and obviously Herod hasn't necessarily been following what's happening here so much because he thinks somehow that Jesus is John the Baptist returned from the dead because oh, how did this how did this go I have a different a different let me let me turn to Mark here real quick because there was something from Mark about how that how that came some had been um, telling him that it, this was Elijah uh, some had said this is the prophet uh, or like one of the prophets and so the prophet, uh, I guess some maybe are telling him this is the Messiah, um, and some people are just saying, yeah, he's like he's like, you know, the the prophets of old. So I mean, the idea of who Jesus was at this point, then it seems like it's all over the board of what people believe about him. And as Herod is getting these reports from different people, you know, he comes up with this idea that, you know, maybe this is John the Baptist come back from the dead, and he's he's here to haunt me you know i don't know to punish me but as amy had said the reason that john was in prison was because herod put him there for speaking out against herod's marriage to his brother philip's wife this story gets even more gross as we go on now the idea of marrying your brother's wife we have some precedents actually for that biblically speaking because we had seen that if a man died, it was his brother's responsibility. Or let me rephrase that. If a man had died with no heirs, male heirs specifically, it was his brother's responsibility to marry uh, the woman and try to produce an heir to so that the man's legacy could move on. Now, I don't know all the history of this, and maybe you, so you guys do, and you can help me out here. But I'm assuming, no, I know. I know for a fact because of something I read else about him. Philip is still alive, and Herod is with Philip's wife now, married to her. So that's a little, it's a little weird by our ears. And apparently, it was a little weird to John, to John, <laughs> and to the people at the time. And John is speaking out: "You shouldn't be married to this woman. This isn't right." Um, you know why? Why did this happen? Don't know. How did Philip feel about it? Don't know. But John didn't like it, and so he had been speaking out about it. And I don't know if Herod had him thrown in prison because it was just an embarrassment to him. Um, 
you know, or if this was, I suppose it, it challenged his political status. Um, Cause we find even today that, that a person's personal life often affects their, uh, their political standing. And, and somebody as prominent as John, I mean, John had a lot of followers. People were really listening to him and for John to be speaking out then against essentially the king. I mean, I guess technically he was called a tetrarch, but this king over, over Israel at the time, um, just didn't, it didn't sit well for Herod. Now, Herod was having a birthday and this is where it gets kind of, really gets kind of gross. His wife's uh, name is Herodias, and she has a daughter. Now, I'm assuming that this daughter is from her previous marriage. Something I'm going to relay a little later might be even a marriage before that. I don't know. I, I, I'm starting to I'm starting to wonder uh, even more about Herodias uh, and 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 uh, how much she got around, but. It's Herod's birthday. Herodias' daughter dances for Herod. Uh, the implication here being that this was a rather sensual dance. Got Herod a little worked up, I guess you could say. He's Uncle yeah. Herod? Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Herod, stepdad Herod. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's just nothing about that. that it's just gross. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I think it's just it's just it's just gross. And here here's here's why this is where this gets even worse. Because in the notes that I'm reading in my Bible, they're saying that uh Solome, which was the daughter's name, was probably or possibly they're actually they said probably about twelve to fourteen years old. So you oh. wow. And on top of that, and this is the part I really don't understand. On top of that, she was possibly betrothed to Philip. Betrothed or even married to Philip. And so I'm still going, I'm I'm going even more. I'm like, I was assuming that she was Philip's daughter. And now I'm like, okay, is this is this a daughter from another relationship that Herodias had been in? This story is so convoluted and Jerry Springer that I just can't even. <laughs> oh, which, you know, by the way, Jerry Springer passed away a couple weeks ago. If you guys, I don't know if you guys saw that. Yep. Our, or our, somebody at work told me. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our TV, our TV viewing pleasure will never be the same. <laughs> so I don't know. But There's you just can read Matthew 14. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, that story the story just gets worse and worse as you read it. Uh now 12 to 14, okay. You know, we can we can say okay, we think that Mary was probably around 14 when she got pregnant with Jesus. So culturally speaking, that age eh was was acceptable for a wo- girl to be considered a woman, let's put it that way. There you go. Um, You're talking about the age of consent. What are you getting at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, consent, marriage, you know, that people got married very young there. You know, I don't know how old Herod is. I don't know how old, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But a 12 year old girl is just, I find, I find nothing 
attractive at that level in a 12 year old girl, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, but you know, we're starting to see some of that kind of thing in our society today where kids are getting sexualized very young. Uh, and it's, it's, it's bad. Um, different culture, different time then. Um, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm maybe lingering on this way more than I need to, but it's just it's so, it's just such a gross story. So to summarize, and and I know a little bit about the history. To summarize, they didn't do anything illegal, mm-hmm. but by the Jewish standards, what they did was highly immoral. So by the Roman standards, what they did was legal as long mm-hmm. as they both divorced. Now Herod had a ton of wives. He was worse than what was that? The king of Henry VIII or whatever that kept divorcing and killing his wives. Like he actually was married. I think I think I remember hearing that Herod had ten wives over the course of his life, mm. and this lady was was one of them. So what they did wasn't illegal under Roman law, but it was horrifying under Jewish law. Yeah, and yeah. and John the Baptist was speaking from moral law. And and under the Levitical law, of course, you weren't supposed to, like you're saying, you're not supposed to have your brother's wife. Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah, anyway, clash of, clash of culture and all of that stuff. Yeah. And so Herod enjoyed the dance so much that he offered uh, Solome anything she wanted. I think if I recall, like up to a certain percentage of the kingdom, um, and at her mom's prodding, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter to be delivered to her. Like literally a head on a platter makes the story so much worse. So I gross. have in my notes, too, that even though Herod was embarrassed, called out, so was she. Mm. So, you know, I think we kind of overlooked that point. Yeah, Herod threw him in jail, but... Herodias, too, was, you know what, I'm not super happy at him either, and this is how I'm going to exact my revenge. Hmm. Well, I yeah, I guess I could see that. Well, so in John, or no, Mark, in Mark it talks about it here. Um, John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted mm-hmm. to kill him, but she could yep. not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he did a great many, he did many things and heard him gladly. There Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday feast, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought him his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Mm-hmm. Gross. Horrible. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, so, so Herod's hand gets a bit forced here because he 
makes a hasty Pops oath. We've, yeah. we've 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 talked about hasty oaths here, and I, I you know I think we can say it is safe to say that Herod was no follower of God, uh, but we can still look at this example of making a hasty oath without thinking it through, and getting stuck in it because he's got witnesses who heard him say it, and now if he goes back on it, it doesn't reflect well on him. I feel like Herod is kind of a complex person. You know, he's at least disturbed by the things that John the Baptist has to say. Like there are plenty of other people who are not even, they're like, you know, living their life, not concerned at all. And yet Herod is concerned. Like he's somehow disturbed by the fact that John the Baptist is calling him out. Um, And he is also bothered about Jesus, right? Like he is bothered enough by the things he hears about Jesus that he is worried that it might be John the Baptist come back to life. So he is in many ways, like maybe a superstitious person. And also he has, um, you know, a Jewish background. I mean, his background is very different from say someone who's a a Pharisee, but he, um, he lives in that Jewish world. He has some sense of morality. He doesn't live by it at all. Um, but it bothers him. And so his conscience is at work, which is interesting and horrifying as we proceed through the story, because he absolutely does the wrong thing, but he is aware that there is a right way. So that makes him, that makes it worse, actually. Mm, mm, Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, because he's, everything in this story kind of tells us that he knows that every step of this is wrong but he keeps going along with it for whatever reason. Yeah. And then to the point where now he's got himself just, just plain stuck. Absolutely stuck. Yeah. And unfortunately it ends in the death of a good man. You know, we can assume that John is a good man. He's following God's promptings and, and, you know, preaching boldly on God's behalf and, and ends up uh, at the end of an executioner's ax for, you know, what did he do that was so bad? You know, really nothing other than other than speaking out against the uh, political elite at the time because they were they were acting out against, uh, you know, the laws of God. So I just I have in my notes, you know, this is the same Herod that at the end of Jesus life, um, Pilate says, well, this is actually Herod's jurisdiction. So I'm going to send uh, Jesus over to him. And he does that, and it it says in um, Luke 23 that Herod, when he saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had desired to see him for a long time, because he had heard many things of him, and he wanted to see a miracle. Mm. So it's not like his heart changed. It's like he wanted to see something cool, yeah, uh, like entertainment. And so Herod has completely now lost his, I mean, this, you know, some time goes by. And he's not thinking, oh, I wish that this healer could heal what's wrong inside of me. Mm-hmm. But instead he thinks, cool, maybe I'll see something interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and through it all, he ends up again with his hand forced to doing something maybe he wouldn't have wanted to. But he's trying to play that razor's edge on the politics side of things. Because, you know, I mean, he didn't, we're told that he didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but not because of any necessarily personal conviction that it was the wrong thing to do, but just because he feared what the people would do because John had so many followers, the people loved John and Herod had this position of power to hold on to. 
the, it's interesting to me the way that we're wording this because we're talking about his hand being forced and yet he's far more powerful than you or I might be. Mm-hmm. You know, he has actual power and yet he, um, like political power, and yet he feels forced by the pressure of the people who are looking on. Yeah. Um, and I find that very interesting because I've been reading Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago and he talks in there about the fact that the police in Russia during the time of the revolution had quotas that they had to meet. And so they would grab innocent people off the street and throw them into jail just because they were be- being demanded quotas of. And so most people just quietly went to prison for either the rest of their life or were sent to Siberia, et cetera, because of random quotas. And he says that he, no one, stood uh, almost no one stood up but he remembers the story of a young woman who threw a conniption like she was publicly arrested for no good reason she throws a fit the soldiers are so embarrassed they let her go and you're Mm. like what um and so there is a sense in which social pressure is working on herod who has real power and chooses instead to give into this like oh well you know these lords and ladies are looking on and yep. I better follow through with what I said. I'll murder someone. Mm. I'll murder someone to pl- please a young woman. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. I mean, I guess you're right. Saying that his hand is forced is maybe maybe a little a little broad. But well, it, yeah, it's social like he pressure. Had no moral backbone. Yeah, yeah. He's just being pushed into things that he. He's just trying to appease the masses. Yeah. Right. But public power, I think public power does that. I mean, look, look at the stupidity that our that the worldwide, not just our country, but the, the worldwide political system gets up to like, yeah. you know, power isn't necessarily good for people. And if we <laughs> and I'm remembering, like, wasn't it in the book of Esther where um, before Esther really enters the scene, Queen Vashti is queen and the king. um you know, they've all been partying and he's just probably a little bit drunk and he orders her to come and dance for everybody. She didn't want to do it. And she says no. And his advisors. So he's ordered the queen. Yeah, she's beautiful. Let's have her come dance. Right. And then and then she says no, because you right? like, oh, boy, the king and all his friends are drunk. Let's have the queen come out and parade herself around. And mm-hmm. she doesn't want to do it. And and the king is advised by his advisors. So some of this goes to society, some of this goes to peer pressure, and some of this goes to the power of a, of a ruling monarch, right? And did something just break? Tracy, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, there's a Miller friend flying around my desk. Couldn't ah, take it. Oh, yeah, no, keep whacking. Yeah, no, it's going to go in my mouth oh. at some point. The plague, of, the plague of Millers in northern Colorado <laughs> right now. Miller mobs. Yeah. Anyway, so like at that point, Ahasuerus's cronies say to him, if you don't punish her, none of us will be able to manage our wives because they'll have heard that the queen didn't obey you. Right. So there's this idea that leading from the front, you know, like I'm the example, like all of the things like there's political pressure, there's there's fear of the Jewish people and John's popularity. And honestly, I think from the reading in Mark, I think you can say that he had actual respect for, for John himself. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it says it says that. And I think the Holy Spirit kind of moved on him with what really? John had to say. I don't know if so much he liked him, 
I think he was fascinated by him, but I think just how he was able to convict him, but he was able to, you know, to not follow suit and not go along with what the Holy Spirit was telling him to do, then it kind of turned on him in the end. Everything. Yeah, yeah. everything. And then all we ended up with was his weakness. Yeah. Well, the story definitely ends with the death of John. Uh, beheaded in the in the dungeon, I guess you call it. Fortunately, a if it all goes well, uh, a a quick, clean, about as humane as you can get death. <laughs> it, that that that's a tough sentence to say there. Quick, clean, humane death. <laughs> but um, uh, at least he at least he got that. It wasn't wasn't tortured for a long time. And John's disciples come and claim the bury. John's disciples come to claim the body so that they can can bury it, and they go and tell Jesus what has happened. Uh, and I was reading another note in my Bible where this is interesting because a lot of, usually, in this case, it would be a person's family who would come to claim them, and here it's John's disciples. So there's like. In some sense, we can say this is like a brotherhood of of uh, among these disciples, and it really speaks then to that relationship that John had with his disciples. But then, when Jesus dies, spoiler alert! If you haven't read the book, um, wait, what happens? <laughs> uh oh, great! Uh-oh. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> what? Ch- how much longer do we have Stop now? <laughs> but when he dies, basically his disciples pretty much run and hide you know it's it's none of them that claim his his body at all it's one of the pharisees that comes well no it's joseph of arimathea who came was he a pharisee joseph came, of arimathea? came and claimed james uh claimed jesus's body mm, no not that i know of that i remember i'm gonna have to pay more was, attention when we get to that because because he was that somebody with I'm money look at what we're talking yeah. yeah, it's. I think it says something like he's a ruler in the synagogue. Yeah, so like somebody important, somebody with money, but somebody that I don't think we hear a whole lot about in Scripture. But the point being, it wasn't Jesus's disciples who claimed him. It kind of speaks a little bit to their failure at that at that point. Um, so, so I had a highlighted part here, and I was going to ask okay. you guys. Yeah, shoot. So he had his head taken. It was presented on a platter. They went to to claim his body. Mm-hmm. They get his head back. <laughs> Good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because uh, I have. What would feeling... you do with the head on the platter? It's like, oh, thanks, you did it. I don't know. They they would put a, they would use them as trophies and then while, just yeah. throw them away when they got gross. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, they could put put them on a spike, but I was just That's, wondering. You think they a... got it back? Not that it's a lot of importance, but yeah, I'm trying to think here. There was another note I was reading about that. About a bit, I mean, yeah, it got displayed. It was actually this was kind of common. Okay, here we go. Ancient accounts in which heads were displayed at banquets, especially to please the woman or boy for whom the banquet host was lusting. Gross. Emphasized that the hosts abused their authority in a detestable manner. Uh, so this sort of thing was not uncommon. Um, Ah, it just gets more gross all the time. It does get gross. Yeah, no, 
Mm, 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 okay. Anyway, um, Joseph of Arimathea, by the way, was part of the Sanhedrin. Okay. Mm-hmm. I yeah. looked it up while we were talking here. Yeah, we don't get hear, hear a lot about him. But it was just, just, I just do remember reading that before and just thinking, interesting that this guy would be the one who claims the body, which tells us that Jesus was speaking at a to, at a level that those guys were were accepting it as well. But I think this I think this conversation that we're having about John illustrates the same thing. Like this is Herod. Mm-hmm. This is Herod, and he himself feels feels his conscience when John talks. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Right. So that's where that ends up with the death of John. And after the disciples take his body and bury it, they go to tell Jesus, which puts into uh, play. uh, Think, then speak. Which puts into play (laughs) some of the most amazing stories going forward, because when Jesus hears this, his response is to get away, to go be by himself for a bit. I suppose he wants a little time to mourn um, just to, you know, he's constantly being, yeah, he's constantly being thronged. His cousin is dead. You know, Jesus is a hundred percent human. He just, he, he wants some time alone. And so he is wanting to go away for a bit. It does speak to his humanity mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, this was someone he loved, like he knew him from childhood and, and he, you know, was baptized by him and, you know, all the things that they had together, like real family, like what we think of as family. So it's just, it is a heartrending moment for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. And he just, he just wants to, he wants to get away for a bit. And depending on which book you're reading, uh, Matthew says he wants to be alone. Mark and, um, Luke indicate that he just wants to be with his apostles. So that still plays, you know, sometimes if you're grieving, you want to be with close friends, you want to be with family. And at this point, you know, the apostles are probably the closest thing to constant family that he, that he's got. We know he has a mother. We know that he has brothers and sisters. I think we talked about that a few weeks ago where they wanted to talk to him. But at this point, he just wants to get away for a bit. Fact in this, we're told John is telling us that it was nearly time for Passover. So I'm assuming, if it, it, you know, there's probably a lot of activity going on um, as 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 that holiday. I call it a holiday. I guess they would call it a feast. They would call it whatever. But is is growing closer. But he tries. He tries to get away. Um, but the people follow him. They they find out where he's going. I think it. I think if I remember, he got in a boat to cross Sea of Galilee. And that sea is not that big, and the people know which way he's headed, and so they they go on foot, they follow him, and Jesus is just he's moved with compassion by the people, even in his own grief. And this is this this part of it is really kind of beautiful. Even in his own grief, he doesn't just push everybody away who's coming to him, hurt, sick, wanting um, a little attention. And he's told that he he keeps healing. He says, and Mark says, it's because these people were like sheep without a shepherd. Um, yeah. You can kind of imagine that, how the, the as he sees the people and they just seem to be wandering, you know, with aimlessly. Um, I mean, don't you think people now are the same? Yeah. I mean, I think that's just fallen people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And so, yeah, for Jesus to have compassion on these people, even in his own grief, is oh, what word would I use? I mean, it, it's I said it before. It, it's a beaut, it's a beautiful thing. It's uh, quite telling of Jesus's character, of where his where his focus lies, um, not on himself, not on his own designs so much. I mean, definitely he's got a, he has a plan. He definitely has uh, things that have to happen. But he is looking out for the people who are suffering and who are hurting. Humanity. Humanity. Yeah. And that is a that that is a beautiful picture of our God, that his compassion lies so much with us that that even when he would feel awful about something that happened to himself, and this is God, you know, but he still looks out for us, he still looks out for our well being. Hard, hard to look look at that and think of God in any kind of a negative fashion for me. Well, as evening comes, then the disciples are kind of going, hey, Jesus, it's getting kind of late and uh, these people need to eat. Why don't you send them away? <laughs> my, my, my assumption here is the, the disciples are kind of like, you know, we're we're kind of hungry. We'd like to go. We'd like to go get something to eat. So why don't you send the people away to go to go buy some food? Uh, some of the notes in my in my Bible were telling me that that even if he had done that, the surrounding towns would not have been large enough to accommodate yeah. five thousand men plus women and children. Right. So uh, that was a that was a impractical suggestion. That that well, I say impractical. It wasn't going to be able to be satisfied by what was around. That's that's the point. So not so much an impractical mm-hmm. suggestion, other than it's getting late. It'd probably be wise to let people go so they can get some food. With the caveat then that even if that happened, there wouldn't be a way to do that. Okay, and, but you know, I, I mean, I gotta, I gotta throw the disciples a bone here. Like, I can't do mm-hmm. miracles. Oh yeah, I no, I, I hear so if the day draws long and I genuinely care for these people, like it's time to go. Like don't stay mm-hmm. any later. Like I'm glad everybody's enjoying the revival, but we gotta cut this thing short. Otherwise, mm-hmm. these people are gonna be they're gonna be in deep doo-doo. So I, from a human perspective, without knowing that Jesus was gonna pull this fun trick out of his hat, they you know, that was a perfectly rational thing and i can't even imagine how far their mouths dropped open when jesus looks at him and says will you give him something to eat <laughs> yeah. I come again right right yeah that's just that's jesus's response it's well you guys give him something to eat makes you wonder makes me wonder how often jesus is asking us to do that we see need we see people with with uh with needs who are hungry who are in need of something and do we have the ability, do we have it within us to help them in a capacity beyond what we think we can? Because Jesus says this with no irony in his, I'm assuming, no irony in his voice at all. But then he, but then the disciples don't do the, don't do the miracle. True. They just obey Jesus. So mm-hmm. I guess when I look, or, I mean, like when I, oh my goodness, like some of the industries that I've worked in, like the need is just endless. And if you were to, if I were to take the Bible's advice, literally give to everyone who asks. Mm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, no. Mm-hmm. Like there would have to be a miracle. My my bank account would be screaming in pain, empty, weeping on the floor. You know, just 
Like there's no end to the human need. And I, if, I mean, if I could do miracles, I would walk through this world with great confidence. Yeah. Good point. Because as you said that, I mean, we realize Jesus isn't, he really isn't asking them to do this. Uh, I think it's more of a pointing out of you don't have the ability to do what I'm saying. And and then it turns around that Jesus does it. So I think that's really good, Matt, what you just said, because he is trying to point out to them, you know, I can do this. Um, I will take care of this. And I think in our faith walk, this is very important to remember because it does change your perspective completely when you realize that God is the great provider. Because so much of the political world, so much of the, you know, social services and all that works in a in the realm of scarcity, right? Like we only have so many resources, we can only give, you know, to certain people a certain amount, et cetera, et cetera. And yet our experience of God is that He provides in abundance. And you know, everything is in his hands. He can multiply bread. What? Like, and, and so, so we see this, this idea being revealed of a God of abundance and we can let go of our fears of scarcity, which is, is completely outside of our normal experience. Mm -hmm. I want to look up here something about, uh, in John, we're told that, uh, the disciple Philip Mm-hmm. Uh, says 200 denarii wouldn't uh, worth of bread mm-hmm. wouldn't be enough to feed these people. And let's put that in a little perspective here. Um, says this might be a reasonable estimate in the crowd's size, but it is unlikely that surrounding, let's see, blah, blah, blah. I'm just blah, blah, blahing the Bible. Never mind that. But um, No, blah, blah, blahing <laughs> the human notes that were added. Yeah. I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to remember where, where it said, I mean, what 200 I thought of denarii was a day's wages. I think I think possibly because that's what I'm trying, trying to remember. It was 200 denarii was an exorbitant amount of money, and that's that's the point that's being made. It's like there's no way we we don't have this much money. We don't have this much money, and even if we did, we still wouldn't have enough to feed these people. Mark says the disciples said, "Should we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread?" And Philip is like, "That's that wouldn't be enough anyway." And then of course, even if they had it enough to buy to 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 feed these many people the villages around wouldn't have enough food on hand to do it at all and so that's the point being made here is that this is when jesus says you give them something to eat it is an impossibility for those men to do that at this point in any fashion even Mm -hmm. if there's no way they would have enough food on hand there's no way they would have enough money to do it. And even if they had the money, there's no way there's enough there's enough food around for them to buy. So it's an impossibility for these men in their power to feed these people. And yet he and yet he asks his disciples to walk out on faith and trust him and do what he says. Yeah. I, I just am interested in the fact that it says, and he gave thanks to God and then he broke the bread um, because, you know, I mean, he is God. And yet he, he is our example as well. And so he's he's taking a moment to give thanks to God, again, for all the abundance. And then with his hands, he begins to break the bread. And as he breaks it, it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And I just think, wow, wouldn't it have been so cool to be there to see him, you know, doing this thing that is so outside of our experience. Like we can't imagine what that was like uh, to, to see him doing that. And, mm. and, and the baskets just keep getting fuller and fuller. And, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so you, to get the whole story, you have to basically read through all the Gospels to get this, because we're told in John that you know, he says Jesus says, "Go see what we've got." We're told in John that they find one boy who's got five barley loaves and two small fish. So to me, that's like the the apostles didn't have any food on them at all, um, which which plays because remember when Jesus sent them out, he said, "Go out without anything," you know. So this kind of seems possibly the way they live their lives, almost like a day-to-day. We get it what we need as we go. Um, and so when it's time to feed people, they have to go out and see what everybody has. And they find one boy with five loaves of bread and two two small fish. And I wonder what small fish means. I mean, I'm thinking if it's a kid's, you know, mom packed him a, a little bread. Sardines. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing <laughs> I'm guessing the loaves are probably very small. I'm thinking more like, like well, biscuits, maybe like a yeah. biscuit, biscuit or, or like a, a dinner roll, you know, uh, and then two small fish, probably very small. And I, I'm guessing smoked, cured somehow so that fish in a basket can be carried all day long and not go bad. Um, but yeah, it's prob- probably just whatever lake fish are around there. Yeah, greatly. And I don't know what's around there. Yeah, but so the but the essence is this is like your sack lunch for the day, mm-hmm. uh, um, a ridiculously small amount of food, barely enough to feed a, a hungry little boy, and they bring this to Jesus. Here's what we've got. Let what what are we gonna do? And he says, separate the people out, have them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Already, Jesus is like, yeah, just let's you know, let's do, let's go. Huge amount of people. Uh, ambitious gesture. There's tons of people, and he's he, Jesus is just moving forward. We're going we're gonna to do this, and he blesses the food. He breaks it up amongst the disciples, and distributes it to the people. What would this look like? I have wondered so often what this looks like. You know, as they're putting things into baskets, is like is the basket suddenly full? Are they reaching in and grabbing a fish, and they look back and hey, look, there's still a fish there. You know. Um, what does this look like? I would love to see something like this, just to just to grasp the concept of how this would work. Because the way movies have depicted it in the past, I think is like Jesus holds the basket up in the air and he blesses it. And as he comes back down with it, that basket is full, which is one possibility. Uh, but then as you distribute it, oh, I would just love to see that. What I What I'm thinking about right now is how... Uh, this displays the same creative power he had in Genesis. Like mm. this is our same God. This is him again. And he's, you know, wherever he is, there's life and life multiplies and life becomes <clears throat> abundant and there's, there's no stopping him. And he well, like when in, um, Oh, what's it called? The, uh, the magician's nephew, wherever his feet touch, you know, grass begins to grow and flowers and, and he sings a song and the animals begin to appear and, and he's just this creative genius and out of him comes all life. So Mm. it's, it's the same power. It's the Mm -hmm. same person. Right. So in, in John's telling of the story, it adds an interesting detail. Like we were talking about what type of bread is this? And John adds the interesting detail that these are barley loaves. Yeah. Yeah. So the commentary's description of that is it says 
These were barley loaves, the ordinary black bread of the Galilean peasant. Mm -hmm. So it gives kind of an interesting perspective. Like this is coarse fare. It's probably yeah. a couple of baked fish and probably flat, unleavened daily bread. Yeah, yeah. Very common food. Very simple. <laughs> you're, you're, we're not, we're not taking everybody to, to, uh, to uh, Olive Garden. Right, for sure. This is not endless breadsticks. All of that could have done the trick. <laughs> Whoa. You just given me a whole, whole new perspective on Olive Garden now. <laughs> They're doing miracles in the back? No, I'm pretty sure they just buy flour and 50-pound sacks, oh. but okay. Okay, okay. I do like those breadsticks, though. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's kind of yeah. an interesting. Like, this wasn't a rich kid. This is his lunch. Mm -hmm. And... He's got five of these probably little flatbread loaves and a couple of baked fish. And he like, that's his food for the day. Mm -hmm. And he's been so caught up in what Jesus was saying that he hasn't eaten it. And that's all Jesus needs to create abundance. Yeah, good point. This maybe was literally his lunch that he forgot to eat. So I've never thought about this before. Imagine when that kid gets home. Right. And he tells his mom because his mom's not there. She's never mentioned. Right. And so he, he's he's got to have gone home and told his mom, you will never believe what happened to my lunch. <laughs> but, <laughs> isn't that amazing? But here they sent me home with two baskets. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Mom, months. I have a few leftovers from my yeah. lunch. I wasn't able to eat it all. <laughs> One out of the two out of the twelve. <laughs> yeah, because that's the way that that goes is that is that. There's so much food produced that everybody who is there eats as much as they want, and they're still able to collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Uh, I want to see this. I really want to see this because I'm like, okay, is it is it loaves of bread? Is it bits of bread that have you know break broken off? Is it whole fish? Is it pieces of fish? Is it, what is it? Oh, I want to see it because it's just it's I've just so. I don't know. I just I get all excited about this story because I just think it's super, super cool. And I would love to see how something like that works as it as it goes. And we're told that in John, that when people see this, they say, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so this is quite a miracle to see. And it is what ends up convincing many of, if not all of them, who saw what happened there that day. So do we say 5,000 men that day proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah? This is the one we've been waiting for. I, you know, that seems to be the implication here. An amazing, amazing miracle. And it's finally enough to get some people to, to recognize what's going on. And then, you know, as we're seeing, we begin to see Jesus doing more and more, ramping up more and more as we're headed towards the end of the story. We still have plenty to talk about, but but it seems that Jesus just starts coming out more and more and more, and people are accepting it. There's a passage at, towards the end of John 6, where Jesus is somewhat, though, disgusted by our desire to see miracles, right? Because mm. in verse 26 of... Um, John 6, it says, Verily I say unto you, you don't seek me because you saw miracles, but because of the fish and the mm -hmm. loaves. And so there's a sense in which he gets frustrated because he wants them to understand the goodness of God. 
Yeah. And instead they're like, we could get free food or mm-hmm. he could, he could, um, you know, he could feed our armies, that kind of thing. And so they see through such earthly eyes. We tend to see through such earthly eyes and he's trying to show us su- such a different view. And, mm. um, it's a real trick. It's hard for us to, you know, we need the Holy Spirit or else we fall into the same trap that, you know, these other people fell into where they were like, that guy can make bread. And Jesus is like, I'm trying to reveal God to you. Yeah. And you're all about the bread. So I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Amy, where a lot of our a lot of our human structure of of community and government and whatever is based on scarcity it's based on need like what is your budget your need is this huge bottomless pit over here and your budget is the smaller the small one cup measuring (laughs) device Mm. over here right and then you try to get as much done as you can and i was just talking to a friend about this this weekend how how everything that God intends gets flipped on its head. God's abundance becomes fallen earth's scarcity. And what that that does to human nature, like we started off talking about Pavlov's dogs and conditioning and the thing, you know, the stuff we were chatting about before we started recording, Mm -hmm. like Pavlov's dogs could be conditioned to start salivating when they heard a bell ring because the bell was the precursor to the food. Like we've been conditioned to the scarcity that we live in. So we're always, we tend, humans tend to operate, you know, like, well, okay, I I only have this much, so I can share it with you. And to us, that may be an act of great generosity because we're giving from our, which may or may not be enough. Like we're giving from our scarcity to someone else's bigger scarcity. And God's over here going, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. All the silver and gold are mine. Like you don't understand this world is mine, but we've been operating under the temporary God of this world who completely sings a different tune. And we end up conditioned to salivate at the wrong bells. If that makes sense. Yeah, we, uh, well, what Amy was talking about before, I, I we probably said it here. I know we've said it here on the podcast before. And people maybe wondered, no fish sandwiches today. <laughs> no fish sandwiches. This is this is where was that's where that's where I came up with with that because uh, yeah, people want to see a miracle. They want to they want a free lunch. Who doesn't like a free lunch? Um, but uh, Jesus, is like, that's that's no. That's that's not what this is about. So I'm not going to do that today. Yep. Um, You're missing the point exactly. Yeah, which is I'm so higher things, you know. And that that is an aspect to me of where charity needs to lie. Um, and some oh gosh, I you know I get I get into debates with people on this all the time. Do we just hand something out to somebody, or do do we hand something out in the hopes or expectation that that charity will turn them toward toward God's charity because I often say you don't see Jesus just giving handouts um you know there are a few times uh, there's one thing I can remember where actually we were just talking about it with somebody the other yesterday with the uh where I don't remember if we talked about it here I don't think so yet but he heals several lepers 
and only one of them comes back to thank him. And so people will look, he just held all those lepers with nothing. Like, yes, but there was a motive in there. There was a motive to exhibit God's charity in, in the hope or expectation that they would turn their lives to God and not just get a handout. Yeah. All, all of that is very tricky. And Oh man, there's so much, there's so much in the Bible about being careful stewards with what God has given you so that you can do good work so that you have room in order to, man, there's a text in second Corinthians. It says something, it's a doozy. It says something like, um, um, well, I might just see if I can find it, but anyway, it says something about, um, you know, you you prepare yourself so that in every occasion you are prepared to be able to give, right? Well, that's, you know, living in this world of scarcity that requires faith and it requires intention and stewardship of what God has given you and, you know, adult things like responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, this is, this is not a simple task. Like we don't, we can't do the miracles. We, we have to provide when we're the one providing, we're providing from what God has given us. And then we're trusting that the lack will be made up because there will be a lack, like whatever we can provide, there will be a lack in this yeah. world. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're trusting that God will meet the gap and, and not, and, and then oh, couched with that is exactly what you were talking about. Like, where's the line of wisdom? Like I help you this far, but at some point there was that, there's that great line in the new Testament of if a person doesn't work, they don't eat. So mm-hmm. now what? You know, mm-hmm. how do you, how do you weigh that? That requires human judgment, which we're known to be terrible at. So, <laughs> yeah, complex. It is. It's complex. Yeah. I mean, where I kind of land on it is that if God moves you to yes. give, to give, then absolutely give. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to say don't. I, I just, it, it, it seems to me that just the giving constantly is not always going to be the best thing it's actually just almost exactly what karen said but i feel like there is a a you know an obligation to pray for the holy spirit and to have also judgment you know like we need to have the ability to think through some of these situations because there are people who take advantage of other people like that's a thing and paul paul says a couple of very interesting things one of them is um those of you who used to take from everyone are now you know in Christ, and you need to, you know, you need to work yourselves so that you will have something to give. Like that's a, a direct statement from Paul. You need to work so that you will have something to give. But then also, you know, what Karen also mentioned, um, Paul clearly says, "But he who will not work should not be fed." Um, that's interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. our um, we we have, you know. That therein lies some wisdom. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fairly in the camp of somebody. If somebody cannot work, absolutely we feed them. If someone yes. will not work, yes. that's tougher. But we don't always know the circumstances, you know. And right, so that's, that's what, what I was saying. Like that's yeah. the judgment, man. Like who decides yeah. who can work and isn't working volunteer? You know. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, I. So heard I found a passage in Second Corinthians. By the way, can I read it really quick? 
Yeah, go okay. ahead. This is really good. So this is Second uh, Corinthians 9 and starting in verse 6. And some of this will be really familiar to you. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Right. And then it goes on and it talks about, you know, the next few verses after that, it talks about how everything that you do will be blessed so that you can enrich the world. And so that people will give thanks to God. Like it's it's specific. Like mm-hmm. there's a purpose for this. We're showing God's character. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know. And that's kind of, go ahead. Trevor. That's kind of where I was going was that that's how we show God's character. And, you know, I think we also pl- pray for discernment that we you know what we're able to see, you know, to ensure that we're not getting used and abused, you know, by people that, like you said, that just don't want to work and are, want the handout. It's like, no, is it, do you need the handout? If you're hungry, I'll feed you. If you're naked, I'll clothe you. You know, if you're in prison, I will go and visit you. That's God's character. And I think that's what we that's the prayer that, you know, we have for discernment that, you know, we can do that and we can live that every day Mm -hmm. and not be abused just because, you know, we we're Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I've tried to develop a philosophy in my life that essentially generosity is not punished. But with that comes a wisdom of of knowing when to be generous. Um, long time ago, for a good friend of mine was telling me a story that this was, this was back in the eighties. She, this girl, <laughs> she had one of the biggest, still does has one of the biggest hearts of anybody I've ever met. But she told me about a man that she picked up, uh, on a corner here in town and was taking him over to, uh, a nearby, I guess you call it truck stop. It's a famous truck stop here called Johnson's Corner. Um, just the fact that she picked this guy up to take, give him a ride is amazing. But he was one of these guys standing on a corner with a sign. And I don't know what prompted him to tell her the story this way, but he he relayed to her that by doing what he was doing, he was able to make over $100,000 a year. Mm. This is 1980s dollars. Think of what a hundred thousand dollars in the 1980s could do, you know, and this guy was able to get over a hundred thousand dollars a year by panhandling. Um, That jaded me a lot. I got to say it jaded me a lot towards towards giving to people on the corner. You know, so so that's it's that's that 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 makes it that makes it tough to to be able to to help in that fashion. And so I try to look for other places, other ways I can help. Um, other than just here's a buck, you know, uh, but some people are like, well, I'll just leave it up to the Holy spirit. So like, so I say, if you're, if you are prompted that way, by all means do it because you're not going to be punished for being generous. I just hate, I hate being taken advantage of. So I, I've heard similar stories from people who have done that, sort of made their living of, be, of being a beggar and whatever, and then like kind of sort of chuckled and laughed about, you know, how much they made. So, and it, it's frustrating and it is jading. So 
You know how when you're younger, you tend to be more generous. And then as you get older, you get more crotchety and get off my lawny, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah. So I've watched my daughter, who's now 29, go through this process. And um, when she was young, she would actually make sure to carry $5 bills. Mm. So that when she saw someone, she had a ready thing that she could hand them. She was, and I, I asked her one time about, I, I, just to see where her thoughts were, I said, you know, how do you, how do you know? And she said, it's not my job to know. It's my job to give. Mm. She goes, they, they, don't, they don't answer to me for that $5. They answer to God for that $5. And I yeah. was like, okay. And I, and, I, and I thought that that was admirable and clean. And she wasn't overextending herself. If she didn't have it, she wouldn't give it. When she mm -hmm. did have it, she kept herself armed with $5 bills, right? Okay. Fast forward a few years. And I saw this same child of mine a few years later in life. And she's like, no, I'm not giving him any money. <laughs> Those people are just. <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, child, the years have passed, haven't they? I feel your pain. Uh -huh. And so I teased her. I was like, but what about this? You know, what about this altruism? And they don't have to answer to you. They answer to God. And she goes, oh, that sounds young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and I get it. I get it. And and I'm with I'm with you, you know, pray like there have been times traveling as a single female. There have been times when I saw a hitchhiker, I would send up a prayer like maybe it's a dude, like all of the warning signs, like do not cross this line. Right. I would send up a prayer and I would get a yes. Stop, mm. pick that person up. Sometimes I would have to turn around and go back and get him because my female sense of self-preservation had be just driving right past. Every time I followed that nudge, I've been glad I did it. Mm -hmm. So the nudge does exist. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I wasn't so jaded about it. I really do because. Uh, well, God wishes you weren't also Matt. Sometimes I think that, you know, you feel the tug at your heartstrings. It's not for every single person that you walk by. No, but sometimes you do. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's kind of where where I kind of revolve is that, you know, sure, I'll see them and I'll give. But I would say not to every single one. There's some people I feel more, you know, pulled to and and maybe it, it could be deception. I don't know. And I hate to say this, but, you know, a lot of times when there's mothers and children or fathers and children out there at the same time you know, or whole families or, you know, something like that. There is sometimes I, you know, I would say I feel a tug at my heartstring and it's like, okay, yep, this is the one I need to give to today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it is interesting. It is interesting. And my, my wife on that note, she, uh, she, she gives more probably than I do in general and mm -hmm. she's got our sons doing the same thing, but they make up little like um, Ziploc bags and they have a track in there. She has um, money in there, like five bucks, and then she has um, granola bars and stuff like that. And she keeps them in the center console of her, of her car or of our cars. And when she sees somebody, that's what she gives. She's yeah. like, so I can cover everything, um, mm. spiritual, emotional, um, and yeah. food. Yeah. And she's like, you know, but 
yeah, I think it's just it's depend. You'll feel it. You'll feel the tug on your heartstring. Yeah, I think so. So, I, so I was out in California with a friend a little while back, and he had a bunch of cans of pork and beans in his car, and I thought maybe he was taking them back, um, like he had accidentally bought them or something, and. Uh, he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I feel like that's kind of a complete meal for someone who's on the streets. And so if I see somebody begging, I just hand them a can of that. And uh, so anyway, we saw somebody while we were out. And um, I lean out the window and I was like, hey, can I hand you one of these? And he goes, no, no, no. I totally just got my EBT or whatever. He goes, I got a lot of food. You know, do you guys need some? And I was like, oh, that's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it was such a great moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, I see. I mean, there are... Yeah, there are times when it really does pay off and it really is appropriate. And so we just have to be we have to watch for the right times. Yeah. And ha and having worked in the community mental health like I was doing there for a while back in the days when I was employed, you know how it is. Um <laughs> that I ran into the same thing. Our neediest people, our neediest clients were also our most generous clients. Mhm. Mm and they were always looking for somebody who was one step below them back where they used to be lying in the ditch, right? Mm. And they were always willing to give a hand, give a half a sandwich, give anything. Like I, I can remember, I learned the hard way not to make passing comments about it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I haven't had lunch yet because mm. they, who are grateful for my service, will try to feed me. Yeah. And they did every time. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I know we've spent a long time and this was more than, do you need some lunch? I can make you, I, it's not great, but I can make you this or I can make you that or, you know, and I would just be like, oh, my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean. I the lesson to me, if I can just talk all over the top of you for another second, I guess I the know. lesson to me for that was if I've ever been in need I should be ready to serve in that way. And I have been in need. If I've ever needed salvation, mercy, forgiveness, then I should give. I should be prepared to give. You know, then I go back to what Jesus told the disciples when he was sending them out. Freely you have received, freely give. Like mm -hmm. that's that's supposed to be our learning curve, is the things that we've been given. And now now we're okay in those ways and it, it should heighten our awareness of need in other people and make us more generous yeah well it's interesting the ways that this story inspires our, our thinking because there's a lot of things happening here uh between the jesus telling people to do things they absolutely can't do uh and understanding then that because of that we have to rely on jesus to do it um and to the point of us, I think it's a lesson to us also to not just be standing there with our hand out, even to God. Oh, please, sir, may I have some more? You know, um, because <laughs> God has certain expectations from us. He is absolutely generous. He is absolutely going to clothe us and feed us. You know, he's told us that you're more, you're worth more than sparrows. You're worth more than flowers in a field. Don't worry about those things. But at the same time, I've got some expectations from you and don't just stand there with your hand out. I just, I laughed about that too, Matt. Please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> more noodles. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's her twist, right? Yeah. But See, um, I'm cultured. Yes, you are. Uh, but I, 
I also feel the same way. Like Jesus is so touched by the man who turns back to say thank you. And he's the only one, you know, and I I just I really appreciate that character and that that story is recorded because I can see that it touches the heart of Jesus. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and then the other part of this whole story, too, is the one little boy who's got this tiny little bit and said, well, you know, when the apostles ask him for it, he says, um, OK, you know, uh, there's just it's a it's a in this one miracle, amazing miracle, all these different facets that that our brains, that our minds go to things to contemplate, things to consider. And there's not one simple answer that you get out of it other than. Trust God, be generous when you can, but don't get taken advantage of. Also, don't get overly jaded about people trying to take advantage of you. <laughs> uh, so so much uh, very interesting uh, contemplation to be had here in in that story. Um, we're not going to finish this book today, or this chapter. Fact. <laughs> Reality. Because there, there was a lot. <laughs> so... Um, with that, then we'll, this will be the end of our conversation for today. We'll pick this back up next week with Matthew 14. We will finish Matthew 14 and we will step into then Luke nine, because there's a big, we've talked a little bit about what happens in Luke nine, about the first third. We'll get into some of the rest of Luke nine there, which I think is more talk about miracles and and such as jesus like i said is jesus is the story is ramping up i think for us to see more from jesus actively uh exercising the power at his command we'll finish matthew 14 we will work on luke chapter 9 Um, i'm confident that we'll have some really great conversations uh in that and so with that while you are reading that and waiting for us remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org we would love to hear from you remember you can check us out on Facebook Uh, check us out or uh, be sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with your friends and family so that they can uh, hear, hear some of this too and with that we look forward to talking to you again next week thanks for listening